Acts 27, verses 13 through 44. The storm at sea. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called a northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the ice of a small island called Kaura, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Surtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet, now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the Lord, to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as they were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, among about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea without under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food amongst themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. The shipwreck. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, to, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and let them, left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran into the vessel. They ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest of on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Dave. <clears throat> uh, Dave 
volunteered to read scripture because mm, I have like this lingering cough. So it's uh, to save my voice. Uh, just a note, you know, uh, after service, uh, I have to catch a plane. So I'm going to probably be heading out uh, right after the benediction. Um, but I would love to converse and see with you. But my, the rest of my family, they're already on their way to our uh, vacation. Um, but I, I guess I, I'm lucky I get to fly and not drive like eight, ten hours. Anyway, uh, we're almost getting to the end of the book of Acts. And we're following Paul to what would be his final destination. And I think next week we'll be on the last chapter of Acts. And uh, Pastor Fred's going to uh, finish us off. Um, <coughs> you know, chapter 27 is like really interesting. And I was like reading through it like many, many times. And, uh, you know, all the commentaries I was reading is like, they noticed one thing. They're like, why is this story so long? I don't know if you could tell what like Dave was reading this passage. This is like such a long story. And Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, he spends a really long time on this story, and you kind of have to wonder why. I mean, he could have just said, you know, uh, Paul was a prisoner. He was going on his way to Rome. We sailed through a pretty rough storm, but thankfully, you know, we made it out alive and found our way to Rome, and boom, that's it. But he, he spends, like, uh, a lot of detail on this journey through this storm. And uh, rather than giving, like, this, uh, you know, very kind of quick summary about what happened, he tells us, like, almost everything that happened here, right? And so scholars and Bible commentators, like, some people will say, well, Luke is doing that because you can tell from the text he was actually there, right? He witnessed the storm. He was there. So the storm must have had uh, this indelible impact upon him that he, just, that he just wanted to write it down. Uh, but other scholars say, well, Luke is probably using a common motif that you actually see not so much in Jewish literature, but you see in Greek literature. So... Uh, think about the sea voyage, like Homer's Odyssey. And not just Greek literature, but there's all kinds of books and all kinds of stories and all kinds of movies about this turbulent sea voyage. So you have Robinson Crusoe, you have Moby Dick, you have 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which I, I'm sure like many of us maybe have not seen. You have a more modern movie, The Perfect Storm. There is something about storms that just kind of make for a good story. Uh, personally, one of my most vivid memories as a child, was being on a boat, a fishing boat, in very rough seas. Uh, when I was a young boy, I think there was like this church event or something with like fathers and sons going on like a fishing trip. And uh, it was probably one of the worst experiences of my childhood. Uh, we get on this boat and we go out to sea, which was fine, but the weather was like terrible that day. So it was like stormy. The waters were like so choppy. Uh, I just remember my cousin and, and I, we were like, you know, on the inside part of the boat, and we were, like, so seasick, and we both, like, have our heads down, and we're like, oh, why'd they take us out here? This is terrible, and then all of a sudden, my cousin, like, he starts to throw up, and you know what happens? Like, when someone throws up, there's, like, a chain event, so then I start to throw <laughs> up, and the person next to, <laughs> the kid next to us starts to throw up, and we're like, this is, like, this is horrible, but it wasn't just that. I remember, like, being, like, really scared, actually, because, um, I don't know if I'm exaggerating this because I was a child at the time. Maybe for an adult it was different. But it, it like literally felt like the boat was like going like this, right? I was like, is this boat going to flip over? Like why, why would these like adults, these responsible adults bring us out here to die, right? It's a pretty terrifying experience. 
even you think about it, even the story of when Jesus calms the storm is like a pretty memorable story. My grandfather, who was like a little bit of an artist, uh, he used to spend a lot of time painting on, on canvas, canvases. And uh, again, when I was a child, I would come home and he would be watching Bob Ross on TV. And uh, Bob Ross, the artist with like the big uh, fro, right? He painted like a lot of nature paintings. And so my grandfather would watch these episodes and then he would replicate the painting that Bob Ross would paint. And uh, one of the paintings that he did though was not something Bob Ross did, but it was just kind of something that he wanted to paint and it hung up on our dining room. It was like the biggest painting he ever painted. So usually the canvas was like this big, but this, this particular painting was like, like really big. And it was a scene where Jesus, he's walking on water in the middle of a storm. And I don't actually know that much about my grandfather's faith. I actually never like, saw him actually go to church. But um, the fact that he painted that scene tells me, you know, there's something powerful about that kind of story that left a mark on his imagination so much so that he felt the urge to paint it. There's something about a storm on the seas that can be very terrifying. You, you have absolutely no control because you're at the mercy of the winds and the waves. Uh, there's something about being in like that super vulnerable position where now all of a sudden the waters and the seas can consume you in an instant that actually has, I would say, a revelatory effect on us. People's guards are down, and therefore, you start to learn something true about yourself or you start to learn something true about other people. In that moment, you learn what you believe and you, believe, and you learn who you trust. Didn't we learn something about the disciples when Jesus calmed the storm? What did Jesus ask them in the storm? He said, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? In that moment, that we learned the disciples have little faith. We learned they didn't quite understand or believe who Jesus was or what he was able to do. And in that way, storms are actually a good metaphor for all the kinds of suffering we experience in this life. Because I think suffering is revelatory. When you go through the storms of life, who are you? When you go through the storms of life, what do you actually believe? Do you break down into despair or do you try to cling to Jesus all the more because you believe you need him all the more. I know we live in a culture that values authenticity and everybody wants to keep it real, but uh, let me keep it real. Nobody keeps it real, right? Uh, nobody's really authentic. We're always projecting what we want to project. Social media has only uh, accelerated that, uh, maybe not accelerate, made that exponentially true. Uh, maybe we're even projecting not just to other people, but I think sometimes we project to ourselves and we're telling ourselves who we think we are and what we think we believe. But in actuality, we might not really know until the storm reveals who we actually are and what we actually believe in those moments that are where we're most vulnerable and powerless. There's a, uh, a show on YouTube that I like to watch. <coughs> it's called Hot Ones. And uh, it's like this celebrity interview show. And I don't, I don't watch a ton of... Um, I'm not uh, interested in celebrities, uh, so I don't really watch celebrity interviews, but I like this show because there's a twist in which these celebrities that are being interviewed, uh, what they do is like they eat progressively spicier and spicier hot wings, right? So it's like you start, it's called like Scoville rating, or you start at like the least spiciest, and then like, you know, the interviewer asks a question, and then you kind of go on until like the chicken wings get spicier and spicier, and I think what makes uh, 
that a very interesting concept for an interview show is because you know usually uh, people who are interviewed they want to be very polished and so they like you know give the the pat answers without revealing too much about themselves but then at the end right then you actually like see them for who they are because now they're in like the super vulnerable position they're in like a lot of pain because like the wings are so spicy they're sweating you can see like a person like crying you can see a person spitting they don't really care about their appearances in that moment they don't really care about how they're presenting themselves but there's like oh this is like so painful and i think the genius of that format is that you get to get a glimpse of like who that person being interviewed authentically is i i thought like if we ever had a retreat that would be like a great retreat activity and just kind of interview different people in the church and like have progressively spicier uh hot wings i think that'd be awesome it'd be like hilarious too but anyway we look at this passage and we can see what this storm reveals it reveals something very authentic about paul who he is what he believes but that in turn reveals something authentic about who god is uh we didn't we read most of the chapter, but we didn't read the entire chapter or, um, you know, kind of get the, uh, the backstory. So let me fill in some gaps in this story. Paul, he is on his way to Rome as a prisoner because, uh, I don't know, I think maybe in chapter 21 or so, charges were brought against him by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And Paul appeals those charges and he doesn't think he's going to get a fair trial. Uh, so what he does is he appeals to Caesar. That's why they're going to Rome. That's why he's going to Rome as a prisoner. But this wasn't a quick trip. This was a, it's not like a quick trip like the one I'm about to make, which is like a one-hour plane flight, right? It's a, it's a, it takes like a couple weeks on, on a boat, on a ship. And uh, they spend a long time trying to get to Rome. Why? Well, first, what it says is like the wind is against them. So they're, they're not, they're not, the ship is not going with the wind, but it's actually going against the wind. And because of that, they fall behind schedule. Because they fall behind schedule, they end up setting sail during a very dangerous season where storms were very frequent in the Mediterranean. And so Paul says, he actually tells this to the, to the pilot, to the sailors, to the people on the boat. He says, you know, we shouldn't sail out, right? We should stay in Crete because if we set sail, not only will there be injury, but there will be also loss of cargo and our lives will be in danger. And of course, Paul's the prisoner. Why would they listen to him? They don't listen to him. They listen to the pilot and the owner of the ship, and, uh, which I guess is what you would expect. And so they go, and they end up in this violent storm. Now, Paul, in that moment, he's probably using some common sense. He is someone who has traveled a lot. He probably knew that, hey, guys, this isn't a great time to sail. But then while he's in the storm, he has what we might also call maybe a divine sense, right? Not just common sense, but a divine sense. Because he says in verse 21, men... You should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. And again, what he's pointing out is like his common sense. But then he says in the next verse, in verse 22, he says, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. And, uh, you know, that's going to be the core of what we focus on in this, in this sermon. Paul receives a word from God through an angel. And yeah, I know we have these modern conceptions of angel, but angel basically means a messenger. And so this angel is a messenger who delivers a message from God. And the message is actually an encouraging word. 
Paul, don't be afraid. Don't worry, right? Don't be afraid. You're going to make it to Rome. You're going to stand before Caesar. And everybody who is with you, who is sailing with you, they will make it too. And so in that moment, what does the storm reveal about Paul? It shows us he, he trusted God. He trusted his word. He trusted his message. He believed what God said to him. You know, can you imagine being in the middle of a storm, not just for a few hours, but for like a few weeks, right? It's not just like a day trip, but it's like for weeks and weeks, like they weren't eating and you're just kind of getting like uh, battered by this violent storm. And like at any point, it's like, is this ship going to like uh, break apart? Are we all going to drown? Are we all going to die? And I think at some point, most of us would simply just get broken down mentally and physically and emotionally and kind of conclude this will never end. We're never going to make it out here alive. And that's what we call despair, right? We call this hopelessness. This is a kind of reaction that happens uh, not just in suffering, but I would say in long, sustained suffering. And we see it all the time. It's very easy to uh, lose hope when things seem so bleak for so long. Uh, I would say maybe we collectively experience this uh, during the pandemic when it went on for so long. Uh, folks with like long-term health issues might feel like that. You go to doctor after doctor and like you're just not getting better. You start to feel hopeless. Maybe people whose marriages have been in bad shape for such a long time start to feel hopeless. This will never get better. People who struggle with like, you know, chronic depression or anxiety uh, might feel like that. Why, why do things feel so dark for so long and where is hope to be found? The first place we tend to look for that hope is probably within ourselves. Look at how the folks on the ship reacted to the storm. It says that when they got caught in the storm, what did they do? They started to jettison the cargo. Uh, then on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. And then in verse 20, it says this, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small, small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So you see that they tried to secure themselves. They tried to save themselves in the midst of the storm. And after many days of trying and seeing like nothing is really helping, they lost hope. But it's at this point where hope is injected, not from within, but from outside. And Paul tells them about what God said to him through an angel. That's one source of hope. But he also points to a deeper reason for hope when he tells them, Right, not just like we're all going to be saved uh, from the storm, but he also says this, which kind of gives us insight into who Paul was. He says this, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong. The God to whom I belong. That phrase struck me. Because first he doesn't say uh, the God who belongs to me. I think that's how modern people tend to Think about God. God is someone who belongs to me. God is someone who should fit my categories. God is someone who should be who I think he should be or who I want him to be. No, nope. Paul says the God to whom I belong. But second, he doesn't say the God who I'm trying to live up to. He says this is the God whom I belong to. Now how can he say that? How can Paul say this is the God to whom I belong? Well, of course, this, is, this goes back to the message of the gospel. I think that's the essence of why Paul can have so much poise in the midst of the storm. He knows he belongs to God, and therefore he knows that God is with him. There's a phrase uh, he says when he's handing out food 
in verse 34. He says, For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Okay? For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Now, the reason why that phrase is so interesting is because Jesus actually says something similar in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 21. And you know, Luke also wrote, like the Gospel of Luke, he also wrote Acts. And so I wonder if Luke is trying to pick up a parallel in that phrase when, he, he's, when Paul says that. In Luke 21, Jesus is talking about persecution, and he says, But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. And I thought that was really interesting. I mean, Paul is in this situation because of persecution, right? Uh, the Jewish leaders are persecuting him. They bring charges against him. Now he's a prisoner going to Rome. And yet, even in the midst of severe persecution, Jesus is saying, not a hair of their head will perish. What does that mean? Uh, I don't think we should read that literally because, I don't know about you, but every time I shower, right, my hair falls out. Um, it's not to say, like, we're not going to lose uh, any hair, but it, it's an illustration of something. I think it's a way of saying, hey, God is going to be with you in the midst of your suffering and in the midst of your persecution. God is the one who will ultimately give you the protection that you need. And of course, that doesn't mean you won't face suffering or you won't face death, but it does mean you can ultimately be raised out of suffering and even raised out of death. That's what the resurrection of Jesus is all about. That's what the promise of God is all about. But the second part of the phrase that Jesus says is also interesting. Jesus says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. You will gain your lives. He's saying, without suffering, you won't gain your lives. Why? Well, just like folks on the ship, we tend to put our hope in ourselves and what we can do. We f try to help ourselves. We try to save ourselves. And if you really want to possess real hope, your lives have to be oriented not around ourselves, but it has to be oriented around God because only he can inject the hope that we ultimately need. And sometimes you have to lose what you treasure. Sometimes you have to lose uh, the hope you hold on to that is not the hope that God gives in order to be open to an even greater treasure in Christ. And therefore, what kind of protection does God give to those who belong to him? I would say the best kind. Not the kind that is temporary, but the kind that is eternal. Not the kind that simply delays death, but the kind of hope that can even overcome death. We just read Psalm 23 for our call to worship. You remember Psalm 23? David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's how much strength and power God has, that David can eat uh, even in the presence of his enemies. God gives that kind of protection, and ev where even in the presence of our enemies, we don't have to be afraid because God is with us. And as Paul is on the ship in the storm, he can be a witness for the hope that is found in the God to whom he belongs. I think that should be a big part of the witness of the church in this world. Uh, I think we should be a people characterized by hope. Uh, and especially now more than ever, where it, it seems like the level of hopelessness and despair is just kind of increasing and getting more intense. And of course, there's a lot of bad news and there's a lot of potential bad news out there. And um, I don't know if it's necessarily worse than before, but 
we're definitely exposed to it much more than before, so we see it much more than before. Uh, what are questions people are asking? Maybe they're asking, hey, is AI going to take our jobs? Right? What's the job market going to be like? Uh, will the economy grow? Will I be okay? Will climate change create more damage? Right? We're hearing like all these wildfires, the last one in, um, in Hawaii, in Maui. Uh, are there going to be a lot more wars going on, like, like in Ukraine? Is there always going to be this level of divisiveness in, in our country? Like whatever bad news there is, and we're consuming it all the time, here's the thing. The gospel should give us enough good news that even in spite of that bad news, there's always hope. Always. I suspect that in the West, the church is going to go through some tough times, if not already. And I think the most important thing that uh, we will have to learn to do is we have to learn to what it means to wait on God. And waiting is not about being active or passive, but at the end of the day, it's just kind of about having the right orientation. Waiting is about understanding our limitations that, hey, we can't provide hope for people. The church is not the hope of the world. But making sure, hey, we need to be oriented away from ourselves oriented around God, who is not only present in the midst of the storm, but is also the one who can ultimately calm that storm. Our witness will be found, it's not in the absence of our suffering. Uh, God never promises that. Our witness is found in the ways we endure suffering. What's going to be revealed to us and to the world in our most vulnerable moments? Do we trust God? Do we trust his word? Do we cling to his presence when we need it most? Or do we abandon the ship? Do we try to save ourselves? I think Paul, uh, who knows what happened uh, in terms of all the 200-some people who were on the ship in terms of their faith, but I bet when they saw Paul, they're like, oh, this is a man uh, with poise. This is a man who, who trusts his God. I'm sure it was a testimony not to the power or the strength of Paul, but ultimately to the God whom he belongs to. Let's pray. Uh, God, we pray that you would help us to be, um, you know, sometimes we think our, our witness has to be in uh, the many words that we choose or the, the eloquence of our words and uh, the persuasiveness of our words. Um, sometimes we think that that's where um, we're most effective in our witness. But maybe sometimes the power of our witness is just in the ways in which we display in our most vulnerable moments what we really believe and who we ultimately trust. And so I pray, God, that whatever uh, storms may come, uh, for us, you know, whether individually or whether uh, as a church or whether as a, a church uh, as part of a, a larger church here in the West, that you would uh, not help us generate hope from within, but you would inject us with hope from without, that you would reveal to us Christ, that you would reveal to us that you are the God to whom we belong, and hope would fill our hearts and that we would live by that hope, and that in our hardest and darkest moments, we would be able to display that hope as a witness to the world, revealing not who we are, but who you are. In Jesus' name we pray.